Hello, welcome back to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. We've gathered in the studio 24 hours after Rishi Sunak presented his first budget and as the Prime Minister is giving another statement about coronavirus. So what are we going to call this budget? The coronavirus budget? The great giveaway budget? The ripping up the rules budget? Listening to the Chancellor, you might have wondered which party was in power. The budget is the biggest giveaway since 1992 when Norman Lamont was Chancellor. There's $175 billion being thrown at new infrastructure and $30 billion to respond to the coronavirus challenge. But do all those sums actually add up? Is the new Chancellor driving the agenda or is this really Number 10's budget? Is the civil service actually ready to spend these vast sums of money? And of course, has the Chancellor done enough to mitigate the effects of coronavirus? I'm joined by a terrific team of number crunchers and economic thinkers and general commentators in the studio today. Gemma Tetlow is our chief economist. Hello. Gemma, you're an experienced watcher of chancellors as they get up to give these big speeches. Did Rishi Sunak surprise you? Well, it was an interesting budget. It's, I mean, it's a budget of two halves, really. There was the coronavirus response, which is really about the next 12 months. And then there was the underlying budget, which was what is this government's vision for its long-term policy? That really delivered on what was in the manifesto, but it is a very different type of government from what we've been used to from Conservative governments over the last 10 years. We've had 10 years of cutting back on public spending, increasing taxes at the start of that consolidation period. And this budget was very much about big increases in investment spending, an increase in spending for public services as well. We'll see more details of where that's going to go in the spending review later this year. And only very minimal changes on the tax side. So the major sort of tax increase was the cancelling the corporation tax increase that we knew about. Well, we'll drill down into some of those, but th- thanks thanks very much. Anyway, a very di- different feel. Giles Wilkes is an IFG senior fellow and a former economic advisor to both Theresa May and Vince Cable. Giles, you've been on the inside when budgets have been prepared, delivered, even unravelled. Is Sunak's team in the safe zone, do you think? In the safe zone? Well, when you ask whether it adds up, of course it adds up in the sense that you you spend more, you tax a bit more, and then the difference is made up from borrowing, and you can borrow at very cheap levels. So he has a budget that adds up. And my dominant emotion upon listening to it and then reading through the astonishing numbers in Table 2.1, where all the measures are laid out, is of jealousy. This is the man who is doing what certainly my first boss wanted to do. Vince Cable was always very worried about the degree to which we were cutting both capital and resource spending. And so to a certain degree was Theresa May too, uh, although she's sounded some cautious notes this time because it's a very abrupt change in direction for the government. This is a government that finally seems to believe that public spending can do a little bit of good, even though you'll see a lot of voices, well, you'll hear a lot of voices in the next few days saying it's a return to spending levels that we should have been having all along, but it's not so generous and look at this or that budget. It's still an astonishing turnaround, and I'm jealous of the advisers on the inside of government who are getting to choose where it all goes. Also joining us is Alex Thomas, who runs our work on the civil service, and he's back in the studio with us. Hi. The start of the year, this was going to be Sajid Javid's budget. What do you think he would have been thinking when he was listening to all this? Oh, regrets. I've had a few. I, 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 it's, it's hard to know, isn't it? But I mean, he will be, you know, he, he will be feeling uh, pretty. Uh, uh, you know, uh, pretty hacked off at the, the thing. I, I suspect, given that um, you know, to be chancellor and not to deliver a budget is very unusual. I think it was Ian McLeod who was the last chancellor who uh, who didn't. So it certainly will have been a bittersweet uh, moment for uh, him. Uh, I was also struck by. 
as Giles said, by Theresa May, who was the one who was arguing with you know, dry as dust Philip Hammond for uh, several years to spend more and, uh, and let the taps off. Even Theresa May was sounding a, a, a note of caution. So it was standing it was up from the back benches. Yeah, and it was interesting to to to, to see these um, uh, sort of figures from previous governments uh, uh, commenting on what has become of the Conservative Party. This may be a theme of uh, coming uh, months and years. Well, let's 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 get into some of the detail on this. I mean, Gemma, let's let's start by looking at it overall. How do you think he did? I think if we take the short-term coronavirus response, that seems like a very well-targeted package of measures at the areas that you would want to see some impact. I think I'm sure Giles has more to say on the business support, but there was essentially a commitment to do whatever the NHS needs. There was £6 billion yesterday. but Is, is that more. whatever it needs, do you think? It may not be. It's difficult to know, but he's essentially said, do what you need to do, we'll back you for that. There wasn't any explicit commitment to social care, and I guess that is another area of our public services that might well come under strain as a result of coronavirus. So it'll be and the hospitals to... desperate to get people out if they're not sick with this particular thing, and yet the, you know the, the chronic problem we've had that they can't go home if there aren't um, isn't someone to look after them. Exactly. So there might be still a question for the government about whether they step in to do more for that part of the social care system. Um, but there were measures to make it easier for people to claim universal credit, to make it easier for people to claim statutory sick pay to support those people who may not be able to work through this, and some measures to support businesses if they're facing short-term cash, cash flow problems. Charles, what did, what did you make of those? Well, normally I am a sceptic of support for businesses because it encourages all the worst behaviour in the business community, what economists call moral hazard, where you don't then behave in the correct way to avoid the disaster in the first place, for example. In fact, you might be tempted into the opposite. Exactly. You're encouraged to take more risks, knowing that the state will come after and help you. This is classic story of the banking crisis, for example. It is not the case now. The case right now is something that's come totally out of the blue, that you cannot really imagine what any business could have done, even if it had been given a couple of months warning and so in a sense it was well in in a sense you could see it coming I don't think people were fully going to understand how bad it was certainly not from the behavior of the financial markets which reached an all-time high around the middle of February you've got to remember so a lot of people have been very blindsided in the short run by both the practical implications people cannot now go to restaurants or clubs or gyms but also the the hit to confidence the hit to confidence if the equity markets are anything like correct is of is in the same order as you see when a sharp recession has suddenly arrived in an economy so he's done the right thing in the sense that he's identified that segment of business that can't really look after itself that doesn't have access to extra lines of credit that cannot find cash very easily and that if it was suddenly wiped out could cause all sorts of knock-on issues in the economy so so smaller businesses, and he's let them off the bills that they need to pay, like business rates. And in some cases, he's found an extra £3,000 for them, which might make a big difference. My big concern is this kind of a, a support and feeling this generous is very addictive. And in a year's time when it phases out, and we've got another thing I can't remember, it's called Brexit coming along. Will he be able to say, now you're not getting this anymore? Or will it become a semi-permanent infusion of cash to the small business sector, which I don't think we can afford? And I think it's probably a similar thing on the changes that have been made to universal credit and statutory sick pay. The changes they've made to make it easier to access those things are changes that people have been calling for for a long time as permanent changes. And it will be interesting to see whether they actually can row those back when this has passed. Alex, do you think civil servants and the whole system is really set up to spend money this quickly on this kind of 
scale? It's it's quite hard to spend this amount of money this quickly, whether it's um, through sort of crisis measures like this or more generally through through some of the, we may come on to talk about later, through some of the sort of uh, longer term measures. I mean, the, the critical thing is that you use existing mechanisms as far as possible and um, you have a sort of simple, straightforward way to get, um, to get money out the door. The trade-off, and there was quite a lot of work done on this in the run-up to a possible no-deal uh, Brexit, which is what this has reminded me uh, of, the the trade-off is between um, you know money being spent well and checks and uh, you know the proper accounting rules and and, and everybody you know, and, and, and avoiding people applying for money that they're not entitled to and how you audit that and, and, and all the kind of things that civil servants quite like to quite like to do and to to, to manage a process versus just getting the money out of the door and supporting people when they need it. Obviously, in a crisis like that, you you, you tend towards uh, getting, the, getting the money out. But it's actually, it's quite hard unless you have a really neatly sort of targeted mechanism to, to get the money out. And, and almost sort of, you know, uh, payment holidays and relieving people from, uh, from some of their uh, sort of uh, tax and other obligations are, 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 are almost sort of easier mechanisms to, yes, uh, to, to I mean, use. Because crucially, you can only not pay your tax once, whereas the risk was somebody setting up some scheme to access the grants many, many times. That has happened a lot with badly designed tax interventions. So yeah, first of all, go for tax holidays and only then look for grants. And how's it going to work with these businesses? I mean, take, I don't know, cinemas or restaurants or things. There's going to be a lot of fairly small businesses saying uh, we suddenly got no customers. Um, we don't think uh, our business is gone forever, but um, we need some help right now. How's the government going to handle that? Well, well, I think in this case, they don't have to prove the link to coronavirus. They just have to say, I'm a business with my rateable value below £51,000, therefore can I have what I'm owed? Or not pay the tax bill or whatever the the issue should be. So at least from that point of view, compared to the proposition we were examining six months ago, which was show us that Brexit has hurt you and we'll help you out, which is so difficult to prove, I think it's rather neat from that point of view. And it did restore a lot of confidence yesterday. Let's leave the coronavirus and those particular urgent issues and just go to the the wider budget, if you like, the underlying budget. Should we say that austerity is over as a philosophy as well as an annual um, accounting? There was a big increase in investment spending, which we knew was coming, and that is really very significant and taking our levels of public investment back to a level we really haven't seen in the the modern age um, post and by investment spending, we're talking about infrastructure spending, things like... It's roads, railways, new hospitals, um, those sorts of things. On the day-to-day spending side, so that's the teacher salaries, nurses' salaries, all those things that kind of keep the public services going day-to-day, there was a bit of extra money, and that does now look like it means that even for those services outside the favoured ones of the NHS and schools and aid and defence, even for all the other services, they probably will see a small budget increase over the next spending review period. So yes, in that sense, austerity is over. This is quite... We'd already had so a So the things change. that we've been talking about quite a bit, like prisons and the, and, the, and the justice system, that that could see things improving a bit after some pretty tough years. Yes, there is an overall budget increase available for those people. We'd seen that started in the spending round last year, and it's been reinforced now. Interestingly, the money that's in there so far is quite front-loaded, so most of it comes in next year and the year after. Um, So I guess there is a question looking forward of whether does the government actually come back and put even more money in in the later years um, if they're on that sort of faster trajectory over the next couple of years? Do they actually manage to rein it in later on? And if they don't, then obviously the borrowing figures further out would look even larger than what they did yesterday. So should we take this as the levelling up agenda? Um, 
I, I would I would be very cautious on a couple of grounds. First of all, we haven't yet seen how they're going to divide out this extra spending. As as Gemma says, the spending review is going to have be a bun fight between lots of departments and who gets what. And this is a very, very political government, If as if I need to remind you all of this. The things that everyone has heard of might do very well, like the NHS, but those budgets that the IFG has been so good at drawing attention to, prisons and the Home Office and... and social I would, care or, and so on. And yeah. social care, yeah, the local government budgets, which are normally not the sort of thing that gets much attention in Whitehall and is often, it feels like, it's to the credit of other people. Local politicians get to spend that last budget, for example. We don't yet know whether they're going to have the sensitivity to go after those. So that's number one. And I, I would say, in particular, that local authority budget is absolutely key for the levelling up agenda because people want to look around at their local local environment and say things are better around here. Uh, but number two, we haven't yet seen whether he has got the gumption to raise taxes to he properly is. fund. He being the Chancellor. He's, he's a very, very new Chancellor. He's had this unique moment to launch his first budget. We don't yet know whether he is willing to do what you need to do to have current spending rise. And that means raise taxes. And he's ducked a few of those challenges, understandably at this time. But I think we need to wait for the next budget for that. Alex, what's your thoughts about Do you share Giles' sense of envy if you were in the civil service now and you've had to work with uh, you know, many ministers as they went through these very rough years? Would you now be thinking, oh, uh, uh, some relief? Following seven, year, seven lean years, there are seven years of plenty. Um, I do to an extent. And I think there's, you know, obviously uh, government is... Uh, more comfortable and more exciting when there are, um, you know, there's a there's a positive agenda and you can spend uh, money on things. I do think there is a sort of slightly un, you know unremarked uh, difficulty for the government in terms of. Uh, I mean, it comes back to my, my theme of this podcast of getting money out of the out the door. But um, after ten years of austerity, um, a lot of the mechanisms by which government will deliver the cash, whether it's local authorities or regional uh, bodies, um, have either been abolished or. Um, uh, Hollowed out through uh, a, a, you know a, a long period of, uh, of of having their spending cut back. So I think there is a you know there is a there's always an, an interesting challenge with the civil service, and there's a challenge with spending money, just as there is in uh, in in um, uh, not spending money. I would expect us to see quite a lot of underspends over the next few years. I'd expect there to be pressure on uh, officials to get money out the door to avoid those underspends, and therefore for money to be spent less effectively than it might be. So there's something about um, the uh, evaluation of the effectiveness of these interventions and uh, you know mechanisms like the implementation unit that sits in the cabinet office and and, and number 10 to to make sure that money really is going on uh, on the political priorities i mean picking up just on one thing that Giles said on the you know I, I don't think the government can only go for the for the high uh, the high profile NHS type spending. If you want to tackle crime, you need to look at the whole of the criminal justice system. You know the offenders have to go somewhere, uh, and particularly in, in in areas like that, there is a you know there's a there's a real um, opportunity for the government to make quite a difference by looking at the whole of the whole of the system. So that would be a you know an interesting uh, good challenge for civil servants to get their teeth into. As, well as, as Charles was saying, this is a very political government, and um, it like many other governments isn't uh, going to want local authorities or regional authorities to take all the credit. There's always uh, many governments have found out when it actually came down to shoveling out money uh, and letting other people spend it and and take the credit for it, they've uh, proved very reluctant. I think there was an interesting hint of exactly that point in this budget. So there's a real question about the levelling up agenda of the extent to which this government wants to 
direct those investments around the country from the centre and therefore be more able to take credit for having delivered those investments that level up versus continuing with the devolution agenda, which is give more money and more power to local tiers of government to make their own decisions. And actually this budget had a hint that this government is more inclined to do the former, keep control at the centre. There were funds for potholes, there were funds for cities and towns. There was mention of the fact that mayors would be consulted on investments to be made around the country, but not given the power to decide what those would be. So I think there's a bit of a hint here that this is... It's funny, that, and they wouldn't be the first. I mean, the, the, the governments are very, very fond not. of talking about devolution um, uh, in the run-up to elections, and then it's, it's really interesting how it doesn't quite happen always. Yes, they really, they really struggle with it. And if you look at the whole tone of this civil service reform agenda that I know the Institute is going to look very closely at over the next few weeks and months, they're very centralising... I mean, it's all about the power of the centre and what we can do and bringing together number 10 and number 11. And it's worth remembering that Dominic Cummings, the first really successful campaign he was involved in was killing the regional assembly in the northeast. He's not a huge fan mm. of political structures out there on that evidence. And there is a, you know, there's a perfectly legitimate argument that you don't want duplicate levels of government, more bureaucracy, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a real question in my mind is if, if you don't relax some of that control, will it work? And, uh, you know, you can't run everything from the centre. You can't run everything from number 10 and the Treasury. And so uh, you know, a government that isn't prepared to set a framework for um, the objectives that it wants to achieve, but then relax some control, um, I think risks tripping up on itself. So let's just take a step back and look at the budget overall and about this question of um, a, a big change in direction, as you were saying at the beginning, Gemma, you know, the, the end of austerity, if you, if you like. Why has there been this change of direction? Is there really a profound uh, different uh, view of uh, borrowing? Uh, was what uh, was uh, absolutely uh, forbidden for years and years, suddenly not only acceptable, but what's embraced. Sh- should we even thank Jeremy Corbyn for that? Rishi Sunak referred to the point that many people, including many very prominent economists around the world, have been talking about the fact that in an environment where it's very cheap for governments to borrow, actually there is a case for saying that why not borrow at incredibly low interest rates, use that money wisely to invest in infrastructure, invest in skills that will mean that your economy is stronger in the future. But it's been very cheap for a long time if they just suddenly realise that. Yes, this is where I'm sceptical. Because, yes, sure, it's right now spectacularly cheap because we've got a panic in the financial markets. And in a panic, everyone buys bonds. In fact, it's cheaper in the last uh, few days, yes. Every every, every second, it seems to be getting cheaper. So great if time to remortgage if you're the sort of person who can do that. But... I thought it was pretty cheap five or seven years ago to be able to borrow for 10, 15 years at below 2%, which was the case under the coalition. That ba- that's effectively zero. It's zero in real terms because inflation is higher than 2%. So this is something I feel quite strongly about. The cost of borrowing was never a part of the fiscal thinking of the government until very recently. And it, I believe it's come in because it's a very convenient way of saying, hey, look, this enables us to say we can now do more. It was never the thinking. It was always debt ratios, deficit, grandchildren have to paying it back, all that kind of stuff. Never the actual cost of borrowing. Maybe they made a mistake before, but if it makes sense to be building a road for rebalancing the North, it made sense whether it was 3% or 1%. This really. is- this is Ed Balls revived, isn't it? I mean, it's the argument that he was making uh, eight, seven years ago. Um, yeah. Well, since, I mean, the, the fiscal rules that the government is now adhering to are essentially the ones that Labour ran on in 2010 and 2015. And this Conservative set of MPs were saying that they were going to bankrupt the country on that basis. I think that the point that the Office of Budget Responsibility were making yesterday was that given current 
borrowing costs and current expectations of how those are going to evolve, the current level of debt and the borrowing plans look sustainable. The risk is that when you're, you have debt just stabilising at around about 80% of GDP and you're needing to reissue about 6% of GDP in uh, new borrowing each year, actually you're quite vulnerable to those borrowing costs changing. Um, and that that is the risk for this government, that things look OK now. If borrowing costs do start to change, then their plans start to look less sustainable and then they would have to come back to this question of, can they raise taxes or do they need to scale back on their plans? So in your view, austerity, uh, job done, did a necessary job or was a mistake? I think we, if you go back to 2009, borrowing at 10% of GDP, clearly the UK cannot continue borrowing at yes. that level. Something needed to be done. We needed some combination of spending cuts and tax increases. The coalition and then Conservative government chose a particular package of that, which was very heavily weighted towards spending rather than uh, tax increases. Something did need to be done. You then get into the grey area of exactly what level of borrowing can the UK sustain each year. There is no hard and fast answer to that question. Let's take a quick look then at the budget, but going forwards. Let's start first with net zero, the government's big commitment to net zero carbon emissions in the middle of this century. What um, has this budget done to make it more possible, if anything? Well, there were, were a smattering of measures in there. Some of them are confirming things that were already happening, like two carbon-free clusters being funded with several hundred million pounds, investigating techniques like carbon capture and storage, further reiteration of the support for electric vehicles, and actually something that was quite a tough thing to do, which was going after what's called red diesel, which is the diesel that a lot, a lot of the construction industry uses and saying and you can't road have... hauliers and farmers. And yeah, all. exactly. And diesel is, as we've all learned in the last few years, the, a very polluting fuel and, and gradually raising a bit there in what you might call a green tax. But he has ducked other fences. He hasn't restored the rise in fuel duty, for example. Um, he hasn't looked at air passenger duty and in anything like a carbon uh, a carbon reducing way so i would say it's it's it he clearly didn't think this was going to be a budget about net zero now's not the time to take the biggest political gambles on that subject so he probably you've got thinks, other things going on you've yeah, got coronavirus you've got brexit you've got other things hitting the economy and, yeah. and to try and do this right but he at didn't this reverse cause it's just sort of holding pattern for now and the treasury is undertaking quite a systematic review of how we should approach this and how we should fund it so if we were to give him Sort of to be fair to him, they are doing that and planning to report in the autumn. So, presumably, they will get a lot more answers then. And Alex, just your, your sense of the scale of net zero as a as a civil service project, if you like, it is epic. If we're to take uh, what the government has said uh, and the commitments that are now in legislation, you know, seriously and at face value, it is uh, the issue that will define the next thirty years of government. The trade offs that will be required, um, the scale of uh, activity that's needed, particularly on the housing stock and heating, but also across. Uh, you know, we've we've done the easy stuff on net zero, uh, and uh, this, it's it's a huge. Uh, it's, a, it's a huge challenge in and of itself, but it's also a kind of governmental challenge. Um, there'll be a lot of focus on the uh, COP, the Conference of the Parties, the big climate change conference, uh, which uh, coronavirus this is a, this is in November in Glasgow. Uh, yeah, coronavirus permitting will uh, uh, will will uh, happen uh, in November. Um, that's actually just the sort of international dynamic of it. This, this it's a huge domestic agenda that that hasn't really kind of permeated. The trade-offs haven't really permeated into the into politics. So way bigger than yet. Brexit. Uh, yes, future of the planet. 
Well, yes, as a, as a policy outcome, it's bigger than Brexit. For the for this year as well, Britain is um, the U, the UK government is very keen to show that it's still open, it's still doing big international things, just with its own autonomy now. COP26 has to be a success for them. And it's possible not to have a success. Copenhagen 2009 was a failure. This is not a government that can bear the thought of a failure just as it's about to Brexit for real. What, what does a failure mean? I mean, it doesn't have to... You know, People the, the not whole way to, uh, Well, but that's not down to the British government. No, but you'd like to think, you'd like to think the purpose of bringing it here is to get um, to show people what we're doing so and, and inspire people to do more and hopefully to reach agreements. Of course, it's impossible for Boris Johnson on his own to make the Chinese and the Americans agree to everything, but you don't want the big headlines to come out of it being what a flop or some appalling logistical nightmare that happens because it's in the wrong place. Or you know, It's, it's possible for these things to go wrong and it's a time when all the eyes are on Britain. So it's a difficult balance between I mean, trying to rev up everyone's support for this and yet perhaps get into some quite difficult com- public conversations about, you know, do you want this or do you want that? And, the, you know, the last, the last bit of spending on these things may be much, much more disruptive uh, than, than the earlier bits, as Alex was saying. And the budget yesterday didn't give great confidence on some of those things. As, as Giles said, they did do some measures on red diesel, but they ducked imposing a higher tax on farmers who use red diesel and the fisheries industry who use okay, red well, diesel. The, 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 let's go then finally to the next time uh, we're really going to see the Chancellor stand up and say things, or, or at least the, the next time we're going to be paying a lot of attention to what he is doing, which is the spending review due to kick off this summer. Alex, tell us what a spending review actually is. A spending review is a process where the government uh, trawls through uh, all its spending and decides where it's going to uh, put its money. Uh, they, they tend to be for a three-year uh, period they were introduced by the Labour government in uh, 1997 and they do what they say on the tin they set out they set out the spending and um, we had a full start last year with um, uh, the 2019 spending review that because of the brexit uncertainty just um, basically held things steady for a year so this will be quite a, a big event later in the year I noticed the uh, treasury has launched launched a consultation process you've got until May the 20th to get your spending review uh, suggestions in um, the the interesting point about the timing of it is they've brought it forward a bit we were expecting it, uh, you, t- you tend to talk about spending reviews in the autumn, but um, this one is going to be done by uh, July, and it will tell done us done or starting uh, by July. Done by July, absolutely done by July. Is what they're saying in the in, in what they said in the budget yesterday. So that's a bit of new news, uh, and they've set four objectives for it. Um, uh, it links to what we were just saying. Uh, one of them is uh, reducing carbon and uh, focusing on the natural environment. The other is the UK's place in the world. Both of which play into what we were just talking about on mm-hmm. on climate. Um, uh, and so the the, the, mm. the defence review, uh, defence and security review, which is in fact going to be able to take its time and, and mm. say things at the end of the year, that's had to be brought it's forward, all, forward all, all, all to be considered by this this point. And what were the other two? So levelling up and public services. Okay. So those are the four objectives well, of the spending What's review. interesting for me is you always have these cross-departmental objectives. Let's all work together and not fight, So because we're all part of levelling up, we're all part of Britain's place in the world. The way they're conducted historically up until now is bilateral arguments between the Treasury playing everyone off. The, the, the game in 2010 was, oh, look, the communities and local government departments have settled early. Do you want to be on the naughty step or on the, on the star chamber judging everybody star else? Chambers. And the Treasury plays all these games because ultimately the Treasury's game is to have the discretion itself when it finally has to make all the sums add up. It wants its boss to has the, have the last call about what really, really matters. Are they going to do it differently? Because if the agenda of changing the way government works has any relevance at all, it should be looking at the way spending reviews happen because they're very crude, bilateral, 
political power. And so plays. you don't get the chance to, you know, famously try and get uh, things that uh, departments could contribute to together. You know, yeah. the police working with mental health services, that that, that kind of thing. Excellent to try and example, a really good solve. example. There's no cooperation. There's just fighting. There's zero sum games everywhere. One of the things that the government sort of through officials has been focusing on a lot uh, over the last six months or so is what's become known as the strategic framework, which is about precisely trying to do that. Oh, you know, yeah. it's, it's classic sort of generic language for something that could the be very profound. Agenda, the I fusion agenda. Called, and, yes. and so um, bringing together government around these kind of core objectives. Uh, and, uh, you know, it feels a bit like um, public service agreement targets that, mm. that the Labour government uh, had. But the spending review will be a real test of whether this is happening or not. And there was something in terms of the Treasury's power in this process, there was something quite interesting in yesterday's budget around what they said on the fiscal rules. Um, because Rishi Sunak announced that they were going to do a review of the fiscal framework. And the strong suspicion is that that is geared around making the case for a, a slightly looser fiscal framework that would give more scope for borrowing for broader types of investment. But they interestingly said that despite the fact they're going to do this review, the spending review will continue to happen under the current fiscal rules. And that's quite important because it gives the Treasury more power because the fiscal rules, one of the key benefits of them is it allows the Treasury to say, I'm really sorry, I'd love to give you more money, but we just don't have it. And we've heard a lot of talk already, haven't we, about, I mean, for all the money thrown around in this budget about uh, the Treasury um, and Number 10 saying uh, what are you, to each department, what are you prepared to give up? Mm. Yeah. Um, they they said a few weeks ago, you've all got to find 5%. But that was several eons ago when Sajid Javid was the Chancellor. There's a reference in the budget to, you know, a pretty sort of strong reference to going through and cutting out dead wood. But there wasn't much specific attached to it. So uh, we'll see where that goes as well. So the previous government's policies that get uh, get axed and... Yes, because yes, those were all awfully badly thought through, whereas new ideas are always brilliant. So expect lots of productivity and growth from here on. And how much do... So you know, a lot of the countries will have listened to the budget or seen it in the papers or whatever, and at least known what's happening to their, their bit of the world. How much do you think people individually should look at what comes out about the spending review? The people who are being surveyed, as, um, as Alex points out, who are being asked what they should have, well... You know what? I would say normally, this sounds very elitist, don't pay too much attention because the sort of stuff that gets decided now will get spent in a few years' time and its effect will be a few years after that. I mean, I'm afraid sometimes what the government says is very relevant to you right now, like what we've just heard from Gemma about statutory sick pay. That is very important. But it's, most public spending is very slow burn stuff. And so on the whole, it's, it's not interesting. And, and I think it's quite a healthy society that finds its fiscal policy of its government not interesting. Apart from listeners to this podcast. Well, yes, so, yes, we've got them all, yes. And that's the end of the podcast. My thanks to Gemma, to Giles, to Alex. And while it's very hard to get beyond the coronavirus challenge, we should be looking out for other things next week, I think, or at least trying to. Gemma, what else could we look at? I'm not sure I can get too far away from coronavirus. Um, having had the budget, the government does now need to schedule four days of debate on those budget measures. So I guess one challenge for Parliament is to keep itself running over the next 10 days to en enable that bit of the legislative process to actually happen. All meeting in the same room for the moment. All meeting in the same room for the moment. Charles, what do you reckon? Um, being an ex-political spat, I'm interested to know whether the old Tory party that worried about deficits and thought public spending was a load of nonsense is going to rear its head at all. I'm going to be listening out for some of those voices or seeing whether they've all been totally captured by this new levelling up, spending is great agenda. Alex, what do you reckon? And I, I like Gemma, I find it really hard to get beyond... Uh 
coronavirus. So I think just seeing how you know how uh, society, how uh, public life is going to function next week. St Patrick's Day is next week. The parades, gatherings, uh, sporting events, Parliament itself. Um, uh, I think it feels um, feels uh, too big to be thinking about other things. Sorry. <laughs> No, that's that's absolutely fine. I'm going to be looking for what Labour is saying on all this. Their very, very slow leadership challenge has, as scheduled, deprived them of someone, really, of a new leader to respond to all this. But we'll be seeing what they're saying in any case. Thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, it's been a bumper week for our podcast. Do check out our interview with David Gork, who chatted with Kath Haddon about budgets, Brexit and his next move. And to mark International Women's Day, I spoke to Julia Gillard, the only woman to have served as Prime Minister of Australia and now the chair of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. The full interview will be landing on your podcast feed soon. We'll be back here in the studio, remotely, whatever it takes next week. You can find us on iTunes, Acast, wherever you get your podcasts, and you can stream us on Spotify too, and do leave us a review. Check out our website as well, instituteforgovernment.org.uk, for all our work. We'll see you next week for another Inside Briefing.